Welcome to the Finding Backcountry Podcast with your host, Dustin Whitwer. I am Dustin Whitwer, and this is the Finding Backcountry Podcast. Follow along on my journey of learning from the best backcountry hunters each week as we explore valuable information I use to find success in the backcountry. Let's get to the show. Hey guys, welcome to another episode, the big episode of the Finding Backcountry podcast. I'm your host, Dustin Whitwer, and this is episode 100. Oh man, what a road. Um, first of all, this is a weird episode for me. Um, I think partly because it's taken so long to get to this point. Um, for those of you who <laughs> have been hung with me from the beginning, uh, which is probably very few of you, <laughs> I don't blame you. You know, this started clear back, geez, I don't know, 2018 probably. And it took me this long to get to 100 episodes. And um, I've learned a lot along the way, though. And I'm glad that I'm glad that I stuck with it. And I'm glad that, you know, I kept hitting record and, and at times forcing myself, uh, you know, with what was going on. And, um, you know, so... 100th episode it doesn't really mean anything honestly um it's just a number right but it is i mean it is kind of a milestone or whatever you want to call for the for uh the podcast and you know i i take a lot of pride in this um not not maybe like people think you know i don't i don't take the pride in you know making sure that there's an episode out every week um especially not like i used to when i first started it but I think what I, hopefully what you guys understand that I take pride in with this is um, the quality of the guests and the valuable nature of the content is what I hope. Um, at least that's my goal. And it always has been. I told myself uh, from the beginning of this and hopefully, you know, talked about it back at the beginning a little bit at some point, but if I didn't, um, or to reiterate the purpose of this is, is just to bring value. Um, it's to be valuable. And, you know, I, at the same time, um, the irony of that and of this show is that it's, it's purely selfish. And I've said that before. This is a podcast that I, started out of pure selfishness to, um, I think, you know, be able to, well, first of all, it was, it was something, the, the first thing, the reason that, that this made sense to me is that, um, these were, conver a lot of these were conversations that I was already having, I realized, and I just needed to hit record. And, you know, this is, I've said this before on here, but this was my life. And, <clears throat> And it is, I mean, it is my life, right? It's my, besides my, my church, um, and my family, um, you know, and, and obviously my, my career, my day job that, you know, keeps putting food on the table, so to speak. This is, 
the hunting and the backcountry hunting and the planning and the thinking about this hunt or that hunt and the gear, um, it's really the most consistent thing in my life for sure. Um, you know, it's, it's the thing that I am always thinking about. It's the thing that never, you know, not that it doesn't, not that I don't burn out from that kind of stuff. You know, everybody needs a break from hunting. I don't care who you are in my opinion, but, um, you know, or whatever, but it's always been the thing that's there, um, that I've, that I just keep coming back to and I just love it. And so again, this is, these are conversations that I was having anyway, right. I kind of realized that I would seem like once a week I was on the phone with my buddy or a good friend or my brother or whatever. And, you know, we were hashing out hunts that we were applying for or a hunt that we had been on or gear that we had tried or, you know, some tag that we had just drawn or whatever. And that's, you know, that's basically what I do now. Um, you know, I, I've expanded that, uh, you know, subject matter, I think by having certain guests on and, you know, diving into little rabbit holes of, you know, tactics and how do you decide where to go hunt and when to hunt and stuff like that. But, um, so, you know, it was, the point though, is it was conversations that I felt like I was having anyway. Um, and then, you know, the other, like I said before, it was, it's, it's kind of selfish. I like, um, reaching out to guys that may or may not have shared some of their knowledge with me personally and, um, getting them on the podcast and kind of cornering them, so to speak, and and pulling out what I want to pull out from guys. You know, no offense to other podcasts out there, but I feel like I've listened or tried to listen to a lot of them, and I either can't stand the, I'll be honest, like I either can't stand the host, um, can't stand the questions that are being asked or the questions that aren't being asked, and I found myself thinking, man, if I had that guest right now, like he needs, like I, why doesn't he dig into this? Or why don't they ask about this? Or why doesn't she think about, you know, talking about this or, and you know, because of that, I, there's very few podcasts that I listen to. Maybe I'm being too critical or whatever, but, um, so in other words, this also turned into, I won't say that it was from the beginning, but it's turned into the podcast that I wish was out there if that makes sense and again not that there's not some awesome podcasts and many many that are obviously more better and higher quality and more consistent than mine but there's not many of them and so this became the podcast that i wish existed um now i don't go back and listen to my own podcasts (laughs) very very uh rarely do i ever go back and listen to my own podcast and so uh, you know, that is, that's something that you guys have to deal with. If there's something that you don't like about how I am a, am a host, start your own podcast, I guess, because I don't have to go back and I don't go listen to it. I was there for the original conversation. (laughs) Um, you know, so that, and honestly, that's my advice nowadays. You know, if, if there's content or there's a question or there's guests or whatever, um, you should start your own podcast. You know, and I, I mean that sincerely. This is, this is not a, um, you know, binary black and white situation where if you start a podcast, I can't, you know, 
have a podcast and I don't believe that, you know, that I, I believe that good content will rise to the top. And so the more good podcasts out there, the better. And, you know, rising tide lifts all boats and it just, it would be very good, very good for the, for the hunting space or whatever. And I know people, you know, joke about everyone has a podcast nowadays, but everyone doesn't have a podcast and they definitely don't all have good podcasts in my opinion. Not that this is a great podcast. I don't know. I honestly don't know or care. This could be the worst podcast that you've ever listened to. Um, because I don't have to go back and listen to this one, if that makes sense. I listen to everyone else's podcast I have to listen to. I don't have to listen to my own. I just have the conversation. So um, so it's it's kind of turned into the podcast that I wish existed or that I wish was out there, you know, kind of pulling pieces from other podcasts that I love and podcasts that I don't love. So, um, yeah, and it, like I said, it's just it's been cool. Uh, over a hundred episodes to look back on some of the, um, you know, connections or the, the network or the people that I have on my phone, you know, that's just, I may never, I will probably never talk to Jim Shockey again in my life, but the fact that he was a guest on my podcast and I had Jim Shockey's attention for whatever it was, an hour or 45 minutes. And he was answering my, he was answering Dustin Whitworth's questions. Um, it's just crazy, right? It's just, it's insane. And, and I could go down the list. Um, you know, all hundred guests, whatever it, it, I'm, in other words, I'm humbled that people will give me their time and their attention. Um, it's, that's very, uh, it means a lot to me. So enough of that. Um, what am I going to do for this episode? I wanted to do something that was that that I've been wanting to do since I started this podcast and I'm going to have a special guest on. Okay, let's give this special guest a call. Hello, Dad, what are you doing? Just uh, watching uh, NCAA basketball. <laughs> well, you are, guess who? Guess what? You're the 100th guest, and you're live. This is a hot mic. You're the 100th guest. Not so the I got to... I got to watch my language. <laughs> Definitely watch your language. This is a family <laughs> this is a family show. But no, you're the you're not the 100th guest because I've, you know, I've doubled up on guests and Jason and Corey and those guys have been on multiple times. But you are the special guest on my 100th episode of the show. Oh boy, that that makes me feel pretty special. Yeah, well you should. Can you believe I made it to 100 episodes? Uh, I guess do you remember Sounds good to me? <laughs> Let be honest. Have you ever listened to one when mom when mom didn't put it on? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Uh, do you remember when I started this? About? Uh, yeah, a few two, two or three years ago. It seems like, but I don't know. Time flies. <laughs> well, it was uh, over three years ago because I've been up here for over three years and I started it uh, when we were living next door to you guys down there. So mm -hmm. I think I started yeah. this in the middle of 2018. So it's been like three and a half, almost four years. Sounds about right. Yeah. 
so on this podcast, we talk about um, backcountry hunting in general, but we we talk about specific, you know, it doesn't have to just be backpack or backcountry hunting. Um, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about hunting with like me and Jason growing up as kids and what, what that was like. <laughs> uh, uh, shoot. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I just, you know, think back to some of those first hunts we had and the, some of the first deer you killed. Where? Tell, tell people where we well we did most of our hunting in uh area 24 in southern nevada yeah and most non-residents would know that as like 241 242 yeah all the the locals well for years and years before like long before that it, it it was like 24 and 23 right and 22 they just added the yeah they added the three digits later yeah so well and until you kids were probably i don't know about growing up i don't think i'd ever really hunted any areas but area 24 and 23 in nevada and you know since since then i've hunted a couple other areas like you know hunted 22 a few times and 13 was the last tag i had yeah and and mostly just deer. I mean, I know we scattered a few elk hunts in there a little bit. Like I remember that uh, muzzleloader elk tag I had as a kid. But other than that, like we were pretty. You know, much- I grew up. We grew when I grew up. My dad did. He didn't elk hunt, so we never really, never really elk hunted. And elk were something I was never really around most of my life until the last decade or so. So we never hunted them much, and they were not in the areas that we hunted. There's really, again, until until recently, there was crimey. When I was growing up and even as a young adult, there were no elk at all in Area 24 in Nevada. And I remember when I was probably in my 20s, we hunted in Area 23 almost every year when I was growing up. Uh, the first part of the season, but I'll bet it was, was in my twenties on the first time I remember hunting in 23 and we started seeing elk tracks and elk manure that had never been there before. Yeah. You know, so that was probably in the, in the eighties and they just, they just hadn't been in there before. So we never hunted them much, you know, elk were a bit of a mystery to me cause I was never, never around much, but until recently and now i've been on uh, involved in a number of hunts over the last few years but well they've they've sure taken off in the last you know oh yeah 20 years haven't they oh yeah yeah, yeah there's you know i've had a that little our little ranch out there in lincoln county nevada man i've sit there and uh had elk bugling 150 yards from my front door yeah Never would have thought that growing up. <laughs> yeah, you know, thirty years ago they weren't there. Maybe twenty years ago they weren't there. Well, but you know, and and you just kind of you grow up the way you grew up, and that's just what we did. Is we just hunted mule deer, and and I don't regret that. The only regret that I have now at this stage 
is we weren't even smart enough to build bonus points. <laughs> no. You know, no, I just, I just never. I mean, we put in for deer, and that's all we did. Uh, even uh, you know, desert bighorn sheep, which Nevada is the best state in the country for that, and I didn't even start putting into that until about 12 years ago. I mean, I, I've never had a tag and I've got about 12 points now and I'm hoping I can draw one of those while I can still walk. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, we just, we just, I just grew up in a family where you just, you hunted deer and you just didn't worry about it. We did hunt, hunt antelope once in a while. We went on a, a couple of antelope hunts up in area 23 yeah. when I was younger, but we never, we never messed with elk. You know, my older brother, Don, I remember having an elk tag once in like area 11 when I was just a kid. And I just remember going on the hunt. I, I think I just hung around camp with my grandpa. But I mean, we just didn't we didn't apply for them. We didn't hunt them. We didn't mess with elk or, or anything Yeah, for whatever reason. Yeah, because even, I mean, if I had started when I was 12, like you could, and had been building sheet points, I mean, you know, I'd have over 20, yeah. I'd have 25 points almost, you know. Yeah. I'd be like. Well, I had, right before I retired, I had uh, juniors in high school that drew uh, Desert Bighorn tags with three points. <laughs> You know, and I've got, you know, they had their first tag when they were 16, 17 years old. And, you know, I just turned 60 and I, I, I'm still hoping for a tag one of these days. So let me ask you this. Nevada is, um, I just want your opinion because the way Nevada's um, tag system works, particularly with something like Desert Bighorns, is, you know, they have a bonus point system. And that obviously rewards you the longer that you apply and aren't successful. But um, it's not, it's not a preference point system. In other words, you know, it, it's, it, the tags don't go to the people with the most points. And so yeah, it's you not guaranteed, it's never guaranteed. And yet you have, like you said, a lot of these, a lot of those tags will just go, you know, it's not, nothing's random. It's not, it's statistical, but eventually someone with three points or zero points or two points will draw a sheet tag. And I've heard of a couple instances where people kids you know usually a kid draws and then like six or eight years later because i don't think there's even a waiting period uh they'll draw a second tag and so i don't i don't know if there's a waiting period on sheep or not i don't i don't know that there is anyway never drawn a tag to find out (laughs) well and and so my question is do you think that a sheep tag particularly sheep tag in nevada should be a once in a lifetime Oh, you know, I don't know that that all depends on, you know, the size of the herd and all of that. Uh, you know, sometimes it's a little frustrating when you've got a lot of points and somebody who's got almost none is, is drawn ahead of you. That, that can be a little frustrating. And I know there's other States like Utah where you, you, if you don't have X number of points, your, your chances of drawn are zero. Yeah. So it's just like, I just drew a, a deer tag in Utah last year and now, uh, at least for rifle, if I want a rifle tag, there's no way I'll draw for about four years in a row here. It's just, if it was in Nevada, there is a chance I could draw, not likely, but there is a chance. And so if you're the guy with the points, you like the way Utah does it. If you're the guy without the points, you like the way Nevada does it. So, and well, 
honestly, I think, you know, the more I think about it, I think that I would have, uh, like almost, you know, Colorado has a deal where in order to get into those big, like moose and sheep and goat, you have to get three preference points. And then everything on top of that is a bonus point. And I know the Colorado guys are going to yell at me because they hate, they hate their system because the, the bonus points don't, they aren't magnified like Nevada's are. The The way Nevada's works and the reason that it's it's it works better is because they square your points, right? right. So right. you're you're not just gaining a point every year. You're literally squaring points. So, right. you know, one turns into two, turns into four, turns into eight, turns into right. 16. You know, it, it squares every year. And so, but if they had on like sheep where... What I think is that there should be a minimum like that. Like you shouldn't even be considered until you have, I don't know, 10 points, right? So yeah. that so that some punk kid doesn't draw, a, not that a punk, not that I have a problem with a punk kid drawing a tag, you know, but like when you got these guys who are going to literally quite possibly die with, you know, 20, 30 <laughs> points and never draw a sheet tag. It's like, and you're a resident, it's like, come on, man. You know, and then you got some. 16 year old that draws one it's kind of tough yeah. to swallow but yeah that's that's a little frustrating it is um so, talk talk about uh you mentioned great your your grandpa which would be my great grandpa yeah. talk, talk about the transition um of of what hunting meant to him you know down through grandpa your dad and then and then to you and then kind of to us just kind of make that connect those kind of four dots as far as you understand it well uh the hunting in uh in that time has the methods that have been used over the uh, generations have changed quite a bit um for instance now you know i do things i hunt a little different now to a great extent because of how you and Jason do it. And that is, um, we have <laughs> between the three of us, I don't know how many thousands of dollars of optics we got. It's just, it's ridiculous. I mean, you could buy a new truck with them, but, um, not nowadays. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A few years ago, maybe, but, uh, those optics get well used and I've been on some of these elk hunts and deer hunts in recent years where, you know, and I, I've really seen the value of it. To be honest with you, I don't, it's not my favorite kind of hunting even now. I don't, I get a little, I guess a little tired of it, a little monotonous of looking through, uh, through uh, optics for hours. And, you know, I, I have a hard time with that and I know, you know, I know guys that can, that, that's what they do. I mean, they'll, they'll sit on a spot for hours and not that I dislike doing that to a point, but I sure can't do it for too many hours unless I'm seeing a lot of animals. You know, if I'm seeing a lot of animals, then, it, then it's easy. And I've seen, I've seen in recent years doing that with, with you and Jason, a lot of animals found like that. I mean, this elk hunt we had, uh, through, uh, through Gunworks back in november where that's this guy killed a what a 374 bull and we found him mm -hmm. sitting on a road looking through binoculars yeah. you know <laughs> and so uh you know that's a that can be a really effective method if you've got some elevation and you've got a lot of territory you can see and you've got a little little patience and uh i'm not as good at finding as you you younger guys are you and jason 
seem to find the animals better than I do. And I think it's just because you, you've had, you've done more of that and you, you take that type of, of hunting more serious. Um, you know, when I grew up, we, uh, we had the attitude. We used to make fun of people that sit on points and uh, look through binoculars. <laughs> I mean, we did. Um, we uh, we thought there's there's two things that real hunters did. One was hike hike your butt off all day, and the other one was was ride your butt off on a horse all day. <laughs> and uh, that's what we did. And you know, there were days when we'd cover, you know, probably five plus miles on foot you know and uh 10 plus miles maybe on a horse who knows um and to be honest with you i still uh in my opinion the most exciting the most exciting kill type of kill in a hunt um particularly with mule deer is to be on the back of a horse and have a big old rat come out from under you. And sometimes they will. Sometimes they, especially in places like Nevada where they routinely live around wild horses, sometimes they'll let you. I've, I've had deer come out from under my horse from, you know, 10 yards away. And, uh, you know, when, uh, when all of a sudden one comes flying out, you know, 100 yards away, and all, the first thing you see, I mean, the first thing you see is this big old rat standing up. Uh, you know, we never, we rarely counted points, uh, cause you didn't have time like you do looking through the optics. Now we rarely, uh, you know, knew exactly how wide they were other than we knew it was, we knew it was a big rack, but you know, we learned to uh, bail off that horse, grab a gun, grab the gun out of the scabbard, throw our right leg around the horse's butt, swinging the, the gun in the air as we went with our right hand land on the ground, cock the gun, cock a live round into the chamber. By the time, by the time you could get to one knee, which was my, my preferred shooting position, you'd have one chambered and then you shoot, <laughs> you know, in uh, most recent years, a lot of the bucks and, and bull elk that I've seen killed have been killed, you know, with one shot. And the animal didn't even know you were there, <laughs> yeah. which that, that's a great way to hunt. And it's probably, probably the most effective way to find the big ones and kill the big ones. Well, that's, and that's, that's the key, you know, is, is I was thinking while you were saying that, like, yeah, man, why do we do that? And it's like, well, we're, you know, we, it, it works. It, it works when, when you're after something specific, you know, and the more, the more deliberate you are with the specific size or the type of animal that you're after, you know, then, then it becomes, um, a lot more, makes a lot more sense to sit and kind of shop, so to speak, and be in a place where you, you know, you can look at the whole mountainside and pick apart and find the buck or. Well, and with those optics, you know, sometimes guys, especially real trophy hunters, they're, they're, uh, they're counting points, they're, uh, counting spread, they're, they're counting depth of the forks you know, how deep the forks are <laughs> right. and all sorts of things. And they know, uh, I I've seen you guys know, uh, that, uh, you know, before you drop a, a bull or a buck, you, you know, within, within five or 10 points, what the thing's going to score. Well, you know, back in, back in my day growing up, uh, you, uh, you saw a big rack, 
you bailed and started shooting and then you measured all that stuff later if you felt like it you know do you, do you reckon and, that's do you reckon that's why you know growing up and and transitioning i mean when when i started hunting with you kind of following you around it was still just a 30 inch buck. I mean, that was like, that was the Holy grail. That was the Mecca. Yeah. Like you were looking for a 30 plus inch buck. Um, mm-hmm. and, and would make sense, right? Because of the style of hunting that you're talking about, really the only thing that you could, you know, within reason pick up and, you know, make a judgment call on, on the fly was, you know, is that a real wide, uh, tall, you know, narrow buck? Is that a real wide buck? You know, I mean, it's really the only measurement that you could, yeah, pick up on a buck that's you know bounding away from you real quick because like you well, said the no. thing the thing that we the, the last thing we knew was uh we, we we didn't know points we rarely knew for sure how many points there was until they were on the ground and we got to them we were usually had an idea of spread and stuff like that and uh, but you, you you know if they were on the move you couldn't always see points unless they were close yeah. but you know that's I mean, I, I just, you know, I think back to the, my early hunting days with my dad and uh, in my early years, uh, I mean, for every buck that was killed, there was a, the, the buck was standing, there was five or six or 10 that you shot on the run because that's just the way it was. If you couldn't, if you couldn't shoot deer on the run, you couldn't shoot. Grandpa Whitwer would tell me, he told me multiple times, um, you know, we'd get BSing about deer hunting stories over the years or whatever. And, and he would always, you know, Oh, you know, I'll tell you what, you know, and he'd start with his voice and his, his storytelling. <laughs> I'll tell you what he says, I would, I would hands down. I would prefer to have a buck on a slow trot going 90 degrees, you know, just swing it almost like a clay pigeon from the side, you know? Because he knew that he could just, it was easier to swing the gun and stay in rhythm with a buck that was just, you know, on a slow walk or a trot or whatever, than it was to hold that gun perfectly still on a buck that was standing there, you know, and well, there's, there's a lot of truth to that, you know? Well, I, I can tell you that I spent a lot of time following him and watching him shoot deer and, and I bet you 90% of them were shot. They were on the run, either a trot or a, or a full out run. And, uh, I remember once when I was a teenager being shocked because one got away, <laughs> you know, and I it's just, I mean, we used to, we used to go out here, you know, North of Mesquite, Nevada here, where, where we all grew up, uh, there was an old hill climb and we used to take tires, old tires and, uh, before deer season and put, uh, put some sort of piece of cardboard in the center so that there was, there was no gap, no hole. And then somebody would go up on top of the hill and roll the tire down the hill. And we'd wait till it come down off the hill and start going across the flat ground and be going probably 20 or 30 miles an hour. And, and then we'd, we'd empty our gun on it and go see if we could find any bullet holes in it after it was over. Really? I mean, we did. Oh yeah. We did that. I don't know how many times to practice shooting at deer on the runs. And the thing is, is those stupid tires, that flat ground was a little bit rough and bumpy, so sometimes those uh, those those tires would bounce just like a deer bounding almost. Oh, a little more, little more erratic, but oh yeah, we did that many times. And uh, holy mackerel, I don't know how many times you know jackrabbit hunting on the slope up uh, toward the mountain above Bunkerville, you know, and, and shoot, trying to shoot jackrabbits on the run. Yeah, 
you know so yeah that's... and then you then you go back you mentioned you know you mentioned my grandpa your great grandpa you go back to him i mean he my my dad my dad grew up shooting a 30 30 and it wasn't until he said his uh you know when he started to get in his 30s or whatever started to lose his up close vision like happens to all of us and he started having a little trouble seeing the open sights that he finally went to a gun with a scope on it so i don't know how many deer he killed with a 30 30 and then my grandpa hunted his whole life with a 30 30 open sights 30 30 and he even had his 30 30 stolen he had somebody break into his house and steal some of his guns and stole his 30 30 when he was probably well he lived in 95 so at this time he was probably 70 set in his 70s and my dad went and after he had that gun stolen my dad went went and bought him a new gun well he didn't buy him a new 30 he thought he'd upgrade him so he bought him i think like a 243 or a six millimeter one of those with a little straight four power scope and i don't think my grandpa ever killed a deer with that he just uh had no use for a freaking scope <laughs> you know? when you're when you're 75 or whatever you are and you've been hunting for 50 60 years with a with a 30 30 he just he had no use for anything but another old 30 30 which he eventually got and now as you probably know i've got that gun in my gun safe yeah well you got that one and i stole i stole grandpa whitworth's your dad's uh, that yeah. so we'll call it even <laughs> so you know they just you know and, and my grandpa you know uh, i don't think they uh spend a lot of time worrying about the size of the horns they were they were usually hunting for meat i mean they like those old timers way back then like to kill big bucks too but uh but uh you know it was, it was as much about meat hunting back in those days as yeah and the and the time you know that's i i remember grandpa talking about how you know again my my grandpa your your dad and great grandpa it was it was just a weekend you know it was oh yeah it, oh, they yeah. didn't they didn't flat out didn't have the time or the money or the gas i don't think um you know well, de- definitely not yeah, the, couldn't couldn't get out of work yeah didn't couldn't get out of work running the dairy or whatever they were doing um back then or even even school teaching you know my daddy for a long time he he couldn't get hardly any time off of school teaching so there was it was pretty rare that we were we left on a friday soon as school was out and was back in school monday morning yeah we didn't we didn't miss much you know and you talk about i'm going back to the optics you know we hunted all those years when i was growing up and we never carried a pair of binoculars our only optics was the scope on our gun you wanted to see you wanted to see whether something was were shooting, you used your gun. And to us, optics in those days were a waste of time. They were just, if you wasted your time looking through a pair of binoculars when you jumped something, you, you were just giving it a chance to get away. <laughs> and, you know, even when we started guiding, we my dad started guiding when I was a teenager. And then, you know, when I was in my mid-20s or whatever, I started helping him and for a long time you know for a long time that was the first time i started carrying a pair of binoculars at all hunting because i wasn't the shooter so it was you know better i could see better with binoculars but show you how you know how bad we were i bet you i i bet you i guided for 15 years carrying a pair of little compact nikon uh 
binoculars that were about 80 bucks they i i remember those and they really like nowadays they would look like a toy that a kid would have (laughs) honestly well and you know i thought they were pretty good binoculars i remember being able to see deer them seemed like pretty well well then as you know i uh bought a eventually when i was probably in my 35 or 40 i don't know i i splurged and bought a pair of uh six hundred dollar uh SLC, I guess they are. In fact, I think you still got them. Maybe, maybe not. Swarovski binoculars. (laughs) And I remember using those for three or four years, and I'd set these little compact Nikons aside. And after I used those for three or four years, I pulled them out one day and looked through them, and I thought, holy crap, how did I ever see a deer through those? (laughs) (laughs) Once Once you get used to something good. Yeah. And now, you know, we got our what 20 by 60 and 85 or 95 millimeters and we got our single uh, eye thing and we got our btx and we can look through <laughs> both eyes and holy crap i mean we can spot deer from six states away <laughs> yeah what i did in some of my some of the hunts that i had in recent years that i uh, you know when i was just kind of hunting on my own i remember one of the last tags i hadn't might have been the last tag i had in area 24 and I, I was out there for several days by myself, which was fine. But I would go out in the morning, and I tried to do a combination of things. So I, I felt that the best time to spot was in the morning. So I'd, I'd be there, you know, where I wanted to be before the, as it was just starting to get light, and I'd spot for, you know, a couple hours. And then if things didn't work out, you know, I didn't find anything worth worrying about. I'd go back to camp where I had uh, a horse tied up get a little something to eat and then i'd go for a ride for two or three hours in the day because sometimes there's a there's back in the day i remember my dad making the argument the best time to be hunting for big bucks on a horse is in the middle of the day not not in the mornings and evenings because in the middle of the day they're bedded up and so you you know you get it's just a game of how much country do you cover but eventually you cover enough country you're going to run into a big buck and since they're bedded and they don't want to leave their bed and they don't want to leave their hiding place, let you get closer. They will let you get right on top of them sometimes. Well, yeah. On the, you know, the downside is who knows how many big bucks we passed that we were a hundred yards from and they never moved. Well, there's, there's probably hundreds, you know, who knows, but sooner or later you're going to stomp on one. And so, you know, I'd do that in a day and, and, if that didn't work out, then I'd go back to camp, put my horse up, and then I'd uh, some sometimes in the evenings I'd just even road hunt a little bit, just because I didn't I didn't like to I didn't like to end up ten miles from anywhere and get back to camp at you know ten o'clock at night. I hated that. <laughs> I like to be back at be back at camp within an hour or so after it got dark, and then you'd you know make dinner and yeah. go to bed. One of the things in your in your old age you start to uh, do or you start to feel is you start you start to you start to care a little more about just having a, a an enjoyable camping slash hunting experience rather than tipping something over. Well, you you want to do that too, you know. You want to do that too if it's what you want. Um, but just have an enjoyable hunting experience, you know. I've kind of gotten to where I don't. I don't enjoy these uh, backcountry hunts as much as you boys because I, 
I have a hell of a time getting a decent night's sleep in a tent on the ground. <laughs> and I'd almost rather have just a good camping experience. Um, one of the big, one of the, probably the big experiences of my life growing up hunting, um, was the lion hunting that we did. Um, yeah, you, you talk about days off as a teacher and you're right. Like teachers really, because they get the summers off, which isn't, you know, unless you're maybe a fisherman. Catch, yeah. Unless you're a fisherman, it's not ideal, you know, maybe scouting or whatever, but, um, you know, I, like, like you said, it was kind of the same, same deal, uh, when you were a teacher and I was, you know, growing up 12, 13, 14, whatever through high school is we would take off on Friday night, usually after the football game, cause you were maybe not on the varsity, but you were helping, you know, or something. And so we'd take off, drive all night, you know, through the dark, a few hours and get to camp late and then wake up, hunt all day Saturday, probably skip church and hunt Sunday morning and then take off and go home, you know? Yeah. Um, so, you know, I don't think it was much different for us, but what I do remember is the line hunting and the, the bone, the only good thing is if, you know, for teachers is you would get those whole two weeks and it's really, it's kind of ruined me. Um, I've realized in my, you know, as I've gotten older and gotten my job and career and stuff in the real world where surprise, like the only day you get off is usually Christmas day, (laughs) you know? Yeah. And, and I'm like, you know, a couple of my first jobs, uh, that were full time. It was like, you know, especially like retail at Shills. I'm like, geez, like we should have two weeks off for Christmas and, and, uh, new, new year's. Cause that's what I had my whole yeah. life. Uh, yeah. but, but what we would do and what I remember is going out and we would, I feel like we would spend almost all two weeks, uh, out chasing lions. Um, talk about, talk about chasing lions with, uh, you know, with, uh, Ron out, out there. Well, we, we did a bunch of that and, uh, we, uh, that was a nice thing. I mean, uh, when, christmas vacation had come uh man there were times when we spent almost the whole two weeks out there i mean we may we may come home at at some point for a for a day or so but we'd spend the majority of that two weeks out there and some of the other three-day weekends and uh you know that was all we did that we did that a lot on horses and i loved that in fact, I just, you know, I was talking to uh, Travis Levitt, Ron's son, the other day, and he's still doing the lion hunting. They do most of it now, you know, which we, we did a little of this, too, where you'd get in a vehicle and drive around looking for tracks. And I, I never enjoyed that part. It was quite monotonous staring at the ground looking at tracks. But we'd go out on, on horses, and that was just that was just fun being out on those horses. And, uh, you know, I had a couple of horses back then that they'd done enough lion hunting that every time the hounds would start baying and, and running, those horses would just, you wouldn't even have to kick them. They'd, they'd all of a sudden start kicking up into a trot because they knew that's what we wanted. Hmm. But the other thing that was nice about the lion hunting was uh, we were doing most of this, just, again, in that area 24 where we deer hunted all of our life. And that area, when you like you talked about scouting, that area – you could have spent all summer out there scouting. It wouldn't have done you any good because there was no deer there. It was a migratory area, and they wouldn't come. They usually didn't come in there till October. You go in there October first, and you'd see a few does and a few runny bucks. You go in there October thirtieth, and you'd have big bucks everywhere. 
And so, you know, scouting didn't do you much good, but out that this is where they wintered. So when we'd be at line hunting, not only did we have the, the horses and we had the dogs and we, you know, the line hunting and we, we caught a few lions and uh, that, but we also got to see a lot of deer and uh, a lot of the big bucks that uh, nobody got that season. I mean, we'd see, we'd see a handful of just beautiful, beautiful, big old bucks every winter out there. And it was just, you know, it was just fun to watch them. Yeah. I'm still convinced uh, looking back, you know, at the time I had really no idea what I was looking at other than I knew that I obviously knew it was the biggest buck I'd ever seen. Um, but I, I'm, I'm convinced, you know, thinking about it, I, the bucks burned in my mind and I think it was the first 200 inch deer that I've ever seen. I'll, I'm going to be flat out honest. I mean, he, he, it was definitely a one nineties class buck and it was just like that. It was like, I don't know, November or something like that, or, you know, some late in the fall or winter time chasing cats and just cruising, you know, one of the main roads. I mean, it was, you know, it's not, uh, it's not a highway, but it's one of the main dirt roads out in that country. And, you know, boom, like you said, I mean, there was just the biggest buck that I had ever seen uh, a couple hundred yards off the road. And, um, you know, all I had was a, was like a little, I think your little, model seven uh 223 or whatever probably shooting trying to shoot a coyote or something with it but and so i just sat i pulled whipped that off and kind of sat and looked at him through the scope uh you know and just like man that was the biggest deer that i'd ever seen and <laughs> you know he was every probably every bit of 30 inches you know he's just just a very big buck and uh yeah that was you know like you said that was that winter time chasing bucks out there but well that that is uh or chasing lions that was a big uh, winter area. Doesn't seem there's quite as many deer hang out out there now as there there was back in those days. But that was a that was a winter area, and I mean you, you know, while you're out line hunting, you might see, you know, hundred or more deer does does all over the place, and it was uh, it was where the most breeding took place, and so you know them them big bucks would just be, you know some of those herds would have an enormous buck with them and they just, they just stand there 150, 200 yards off the road and look at you <laughs> when, when, uh, you know, three or four weeks earlier, you couldn't get within a mile of them without them suckers being on a dead run. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what let, let, let's wrap up with this. I know you, it's getting late for you, uh, Floyd, you're probably ready for bed. Uh, <laughs> yeah. where, where did, so we, if you've ever spent any time around us or seen some of our posts or whatever, we always refer to our dad as Floyd. And that's a, that's kind of a hunting thing. Where did that, is that even a good story or where did that come from? I don't know. Well, I tell you, you know, I was uh, a lot of my buddies in high school all had nicknames. I I never had a nickname. And I can tell you what happened as uh, down there at uh, John's garage where, where my hunting buddy, Ron Levitt, his dad owned that. You know, and he's, uh, him and his brother and them have worked uh, their whole life in the mechanic shop and the welding shop. And I went down there one day and they had a kind of a new guy working there for them. And, uh, so I was kind of introduced to him and, uh, he kind of, uh, I guess when I come back in another day, he kind of got screwed up on my name and thought I was Floyd Whitmore. <laughs> and, uh, Ron thought that was the funniest damn thing he'd heard in six months. So, uh, he started calling me Floyd. Yeah. 
Well, and uh, <laughs> so he starts calling me Floyd, and then all you kids pick up on it. And so, you know, to this day, my two sons call me Floyd, and all my former, almost all my former baseball players that I coached over the years that were uh, around the same ages as you guys, uh, you know, I run to them, they call me Floyd. So <laughs> my Gmail, my Gmail, people will, uh, people, I'll get introduced to people or something, and then I'll give them my email, and I'll tell them it's Floyd Witt. We're at gmail.com, and they're like, now, wait, is it Floyd or Boyd? <laughs> Floyd or Boyd? So I've had to explain that about 500 times. <laughs> Uh, I, I'm looking at your, your name in my phone and it's Floyd Whitworth. So if that doesn't oh, yeah. say it all. All right, yeah. Floyd, what, what is your last thing here? What's your, been your most memorable hunt that you've been on with like us, uh, boys that you can recall? Well, if I was to think, uh, you know, one each, um, one of my favorite hunts with Jason is he had a tag in area 24 when he was about 15 or 16. And the season opened, uh, I don't know, around the 15th or 20th of October. I don't know. This has been, this has been about 15 years ago. And I remember we went out there and hunted a little bit in the early weeks and we were seeing a few deer and we were seeing a few, a uh, few small and medium bucks. And he was kind of wanting to shoot one a little bit. And I, kind of talked him out of it and i said dude it's just you know we got two more weeks man the it's just gonna get better well last week we ended up i mean it was just phenomenal that area had just burned the majority of it had burned that summer and so a lot of it was just completely wide open hardly hardly a blade of grass on it but the new growth had grown up about a foot or so by the time deer season so there still was patches of of heavy brush and stuff for uh for cover they were out feeding in the burns a lot and i mean jason and i hunted for four or five days there and i mean i don't know how many dozens and dozens and dozens and hundreds of deer we saw and several dozen bucks and we actually got a shot at a monster he was he was one of those you just you know we were hunting on horse we didn't spot him you know with binoculars we were hunting on horse and it was a little bit of a tough running shot for him, and we didn't get him. But a day or so later, we did. We got a we got a real nice buck, and that was just that was just a really good hunt because we were seeing a lot of deer every day. We were seeing a lot of bucks every day, and we saw, you know, six or eight just, you know, that ninety percent of hunters would shoot in a heartbeat, and we saw one that was an absolute stud, and we ended up. We didn't get the real stud, but but he got a pretty dang good one, and that was a that was a fun hunt. Uh, <laughs> well, I, I don't. First of all, I don't feel bad for Hubba missing uh, a big buck. <laughs> yeah, you know, hindsight's twenty he, twenty. He's done just he's fine. Had, he's had pretty good luck, but I'll tell you that buck it was, was a typical. And as far as a typical, he'd have been as big as any he shot. But the one he got was no slouch either. He didn't score exceptionally well because he had a little bit crab clawed on the front on both sides. But he was a he was a you know nice probably one seventy buck or something like that. Um, one hunt I uh, I remember with you is uh, <laughs> probably when you were about 
13 or 14 i mean it'd probably been about your second buck but we had uh, been hunting around and i can't remember exactly all the details of the hunt that week but we finally got a we had a buck on a open side hill kind of in almost down in the desert country and uh you started shooting away at him <laughs> and uh, you obviously hit him because we he started acting funny and you probably shot oh boy you probably shot the you probably shot the six millimeter empty the clip and then we reloaded and uh when it was all said and done we found that you'd hit him i think you'd hit him in the hoof or something oh gosh (laughs) seems like you'd nicked his skull or something and kind of dazed him because he was going across the hillside then all of a sudden instead of keeping going he turned around and came back and i think you dazed him and uh i knew i shouldn't add you on the podcast <laughs> i remember you finally got down to one bullet and you panicked and you said oh you shoot him you shoot him <laughs> so so i think i shot the last bullet and did uh did kind of get one in him but it wasn't a real clean kill shot either and then we then we went up there and and we had to wait about five minutes the poor deer wasn't dead and we were out of bullets oh gosh why did i call you <laughs> <laughs> that's that's what i remember that always kind of sticks out oh uh, <laughs> but we got him <laughs> yeah we got him i you were just i don't think you were older than about 13 yeah yeah so. i've kind of forgotten about that i wonder why i was trying to push that out of my memory yeah <laughs> All right, Floyd. Well, that's it's been uh, exactly what I was hoping for. So, um, yeah, took me a hundred episodes to get you on, and now after that story, you're probably not going to be. By the way, probably be two hundred before you get on. If if it makes you feel better, that one, Jason, I just talked about that he killed when he was about fifteen or sixteen. He actually it come out of a draw following a doe, and he shot, and uh, and all he did was broke its leg at the knee. And we would have never found that buck. I'm not kidding. We would have never found that buck. But like I said that that year it had just burned, and I mean, a much of that country had burned, and it was just black, and there was there was nothing. I mean, it was just wide open country. It was like you know hunting in antelope country, on the hills, and that that buck would have got away from us. We'd have probably never seen him again. We'd have never got another shot at him because he got over the hill. But what obviously happened is we were we were working we crossed the draw and was working up the hillside where the deer was when we shot and just about the time we got to where the deer was when he shot at it and broke the leg all of a sudden i saw movement to our left down below us and it was that buck and he came into some brush and went i mean didn't go 15 20 yards in the brush and immediately laid down because he was hurting and jason was able to shoot i said jason there he is Jason was able to shoot and, and get a good shot on him and, and finished him from a you know couple hundred yards. But the only reason we ever saw that buck again was because when he went over the hill, he was going into totally burnt country and he had no cover. So he doubled back and came right back to us. If it hadn't burnt that year, that thing would have had the opportunity to go about 40 billion different directions and we'd likely never found him. Well, I will say that um, both of our marksmanship has improved immensely. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, there's no doubt about that. Yeah. <laughs> Only one shot kills after that. Yeah. 
yeah, now you guys are shooting things at 900 yards with your with your gunworks rifles. Yeah. Oh, Floyd. All right. Well, I'm sure you're getting tucked into bed, so we'll uh, well, let, let you go. But appreciate you coming getting, on. It's getting close to that time. Yeah, I bet. So, all right. Well, hey, 100th episode. Had to get you on. Wanted to hear some good hunting stories. So, good chatting with you. All right. See you, Floyd. We'll see you. Bye. Oh man, what a what a phone call that was. <laughs> Don't believe anything that, don't believe anything that he says. All right. So I want to wrap this up. Um, I had quite a few. We're going to take a left turn here, but um, in fact, let me get organized here. One second. Okay. Had uh, quite a few questions uh, that I posted up on the Instagram and they're so they're just, all these are out of left field and right field and center field that I'm just going to kind of go through some of these and end with answering some of, uh, some of your questions that you guys have, uh, a lot of them revolve around energy drinks. Uh, some, uh, just, I don't know. What... Um, so let's start here. Let's see. A lot of gun, a couple gun questions um, that I'll, if I have time for a few of them here. Uh, But just want to answer some of your questions. You know, we don't do this a ton for the show, so I thought that this would be a good time. Um, Sam Johnson, one gun for the rest of my life. What am I building? (sighs) Well, Sam, that's a tough one because one gun for the rest of your life you know, am I ever going to go to Africa and hunt, you know, crazy stuff like that? I don't think that's something that I'm really too worried about. Um, am I ever going to hopefully go kill maybe like a big coastal brown bear or something like that? Yeah, maybe. Um, so that all that matters, right? I think one gun for the rest of your life, right? I think I'm going to assume or put a little asterisk in there that, you know, if I have one of those real crazy specialized you know, African dangerous game or even a a brown bear that I could, you know, maybe pick up a different gun at some point. And so one gun for the rest of my life, honestly, I, dang, that's a good question. I I assume you're meaning one cartridge for the rest of my life. Um, what am I building? Um, Yeah, one cartridge the rest of my life. I'm gonna stick. I'm gonna stick with my seven psalm. No, no, I'm not. I'm gonna go a little bigger than that. I apologize to my seven psalm uh, family, but I'm gonna. I, I'd have to go a little bigger than that. I would. Uh, you know what? It'd probably be my 300, uh, 300 Norma that I'm working on because I think, man, that would just cover everything everywhere. And I know, I know my seven millimeter guys are going to be jumping down my throat. Like what the heck dude. But, um, yeah, I think that 300 Norma, if it had to be the one, if it literally had to be the one gun, especially if it was the one gun, no matter what, I think I'd build the 300 Norma and run, run with it. Uh, Selway Archery, uh, your number one tip for showing up to an area blind with only e-scouting. 
Uh, my number one tip is don't do that. <laughs> I've done that before, and it does not typically end well. Um, I can think of, I can think of two hunts off the top of my head. Now I had been, one of the hunts was last year in Colorado and I had been in the unit, but the unit was big enough that I, I ended up going to a whole different spot cause I wanted to try it and it wasn't a tag that takes a lot of points. And so I ended up in a place that I had never been other than e-scouting and I like, even after all these years, I dramatically, uh, underestimated the size of the country. And then I, I'm thinking about my New Mexico, uh, tag and not that that, you know, not that that really was what hurt me. I don't think there was a lot of deer moving into the country, but, um, you know, it took me, it took me a good day or two of the hunt to orient and you don't have that kind of time on that New Mexico hunt specifically. So, my first tip is don't show up to an area blind with only e-scouting. I try to live by this and I don't obviously always, but if I'm going to an area or a part of a unit that I've never been, the, the rule that I don't always follow is I always make a scouting trip in the summer. I always, most of the time make a scouting trip in the summer. Um, so that's, that's my number one tip is don't do that. Show up and make it a point to do a scouting trip because it will almost always uh, end up burning you uh, if you don't. So uh, Big Chief Wackabuck, wow, no question, but dang impressed that you've made it to 100 episodes. I think that's a slight because he it's uh, taken me so long to get here, but uh h underscore deckert 24 how to how how to sort out bad outfitters from good outfitters uh referrals 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 talk to people who have been on their hunts you know uh depends on i don't know depends on what type of hunt exactly you're talking about um look on their website are they updating their website with the previous year's hunts you know what i mean if it's some outfitter that you know, still has photos that look like they're from, you know, 1980 and 1990 with old Polaroids or whatever. And that's what they're using for their marketing. Like, you know, probably not, uh, doing as well as they should be doing, but you know, referrals these days. I mean, if, you know, if they either don't have a big name or, and, or they're not tied in with, you know, some sort of service and Epic outdoors, for example, like, they better have some hard, you know, real good referrals um, or client testimonial type deals, references, so to speak, that you can contact. So, but I would just, uh, yeah, talk to people who have maybe been with them or uh, you know that have that have gone with them. Uh, why are shorter MS Hunter? What's up, buddy? Uh, just just met uh, MS Hunter in person the other day. Uh, why are barrels getting shorter? I understand weight, but why else? Good question. So the short answer, uh, why are barrels getting shorter? A, a couple reasons. Uh, the biggest one, ballistic coefficients on bullets, I think. And this is just according to Dustin. But I think ballistic coefficients, right? Uh, when you look at the pendulum shift over the last 40, 50, 60 years, uh, there's two parts to an equation when you're talking, if we're assuming that we're talking long range hunting rifles here, there's 
the speed of the bullet and the ballistic coefficient of the bullet, right? That's basically it. And 50, 60 years ago, enter a company like Weatherby, right? Bullet ballistic coefficients were horrible uh, relative to what they are now, right? If you were shooting a seven mil, seven mil caliber cartridge, it was probably, uh, you know, 60, 70 years ago, it was a 150 or a 140 or something horrible like that with a BC in the toilet, right? And so, and that's all they had, right? They didn't have these, you know, specific long range, ultra high BC uh, type bullets. And so the only other part of that equation that they could manipulate was the speed. And how do you do that? One way is to extend the barrel. Also, another way is overbore a car, uh, uh, the cartridge, right? Overbore the brass. Um, and you saw a lot of that too. But that's where 26 and 28 and 30 and crazy long uh, barrels came in is because they were trying to milk as much speed um, out of a out of a for a bullet as they could to offset the poor ballistic coefficient the other the other reason that barrels have gotten shorter is ballistic range finders specific generally range finders but specifically ballistic range finders and what that means you know again uh, 50, 60, 70 years ago is all, you know, we didn't, very few guys were dialing up turrets. And if you were going to take a four or 500 yard shot, um, it was with a, you know, a fixed six or a three to nine or something that, you know, and we hunted differently. We didn't hunt like we do today. Right. Um, we just got done talking to my dad about, you know, kicking bucks up when we were kids and, you know, that on the, off the fly, uh, you know, on the spot bucks going over a hill you got to get a shot off right now type of hunting and that's how a lot of guys hunted back then uh, because optics weren't as good as they are now and so because of that um man if you could get a bullet humming you know 3400 feet a second or something out of a seven mil or 3500 feet a second and you could zero your gun at 300 yards you could hold on hair out to five or six hundred yards or whatever right i mean i'm just kind of generalizing but um, and so, you know, those long barrels would increase velocity, which would result in, you know, if you had to take a shot off the fly, and frankly, if you had a rangefinder, no one did back then, but if you did, um, it was probably horrible. And, but no, no one did, right? We never hunted with rangefinders. And so you were just guesstimating. And, you know, a good hunter can probably estimate, you know, within, I don't know, 50, 50 yards, you know, or less, uh, you know, if you're real good, you know, 300, 350, 325, you could kind of, you know, bracket into 25 yards, maybe if you were really good, but, you know, think about that swing, um, understanding the distance to your target, it leaves a lot of room for error when you're only within 50 or 75 or a hundred yards on your guess. Um, and so fast forward to nowadays, bullet ballistic coefficients through the roof. Right. So that offsets that other half of the equation where, you know, you can milk more out of a BC on a bullet and don't need uh, to get it out of uh, long barrel life. Then enter simultaneously ballistic range finders and specifically just very accurate range finders where, boom, on the spot, basically. I mean, heck, we have them. Most of the guys have them in their binos anymore. You know, you can you know the exact distance to your target like that within two yards or one yard or whatever. And so, uh, the ability, uh, to dial up to an exact 
spot on a turret, for example, we no longer need that extra speed of a round. It doesn't really matter if my bullet's leaving at 2,800 feet a second, like out of my 7 Zom. I don't, who cares, right? I'm going to dial my turret up, and as long as my bullet still maintains the velocity when it gets there to open up and expand and do some damage, then who cares? Who cares how fast it's leaving the muzzle? Because, you know, and that bullet's going to fly more efficiently anyway out of the muzzle because the BC is higher. Now, a byproduct of that, it's not, this is not why barrels have gotten shorter in my opinion, but a byproduct of that that makes it really nice is we all like to run suppressors now. And so it all just kind of works together. Um, you know, and it all makes sense depending on the exact cartridge that you're running. Some play better with longer barrels a little bit. You know, I wouldn't necessarily run an 18 inch barrel out of a seven millimeter Rem Remington mag, right? That's not a real efficient burning cartridge out of a um, a short barrel, but my 7 Somme is extremely efficient, right? Because the two different shapes of the powder columns, basically. And so it depends on what cartridge specifically, but generally, um, you know, and I see this at work all the time, is we can get away with, uh, I mean, most of our rifles don't have longer than a 24-inch barrel, and we build a lot of 22s and 20s, um, and even a few 18s. So that's my too long of a spiel on that. <laughs> uh Cole Cole Shakes, my buddy Cole Shakes. We go way back. What was your sketchiest moment as a wildland firefighter? Uh and do you miss it? So I used to fight wildland fire. I fought wildland fire for three years, and it was the most fun that I've ever had. It was the hardest work and the most fun I've ever had at a job. I right out of college. Um you know, quick story on that. I, I hit uh I graduated college at the worst possible time. Um, right, I graduated in 2009, right at the bottomed out in the absolute, uh, bottom of the crisis, you know, the economic recession, 2008, um, basically. And so it was not looking good. And luckily right before that, it all hit the winter before you have to put your application in to be a wildland firefighter. And my brother-in-law, uh, Josh, was already fighting fire for a year. And he said, hey, this is kind of, you know, whatever. And so I, I, I put it just like a first summer job is what it was going to be. And kind of snuck in. Uh, was honestly blessed to uh, get a, a wildland fire job down in Cedar City. And ended up doing it for three years because there really wasn't, you know, and I was blessed with uh, kind of a, quote unquote guaranteed job with the government for three three years three summers at least um and it was it was uh yeah it was a heck of a good time uh the sketchiest moment uh <laughs> uh one time just fighting a fire and we got you know that tall sagebrush type stuff in that southern utah area and we got probably where we shouldn't have been at kind of the um fire kind of did a um or a winch did a wind shift on us if i remember right and came running off the back of a hill and we ended up kind of out in the front of it and i was the one out in front of the the we were on it i was a, a, an engine crew um, don't hold that against me but i was with an engine crew big type four and i'm out running the hose on the front of this fire and we're just we're giving it everything we could but the you know, because the, the wind is pushing it into us, I mean, we're basically at the head of this thing. And so the harder that I hit it with water, 
you know, and this wasn't like the little, you know, Wyoming, you know, foot tall sagebrush. This was like Southern Utah, like sagebrush up to your shoulders. Uh, you know, just that real big, like couldn't hardly see over it sagebrush. And this thing was ripping. And so the harder you hit it with water, the more, um, of that steam and, you know, the smoke inhalation was coming right in my face. And it got to a point where I just, you know, it was like, we're bailing, man. Like we got to get out of here. Flames are starting to, uh, felt like flames were going to start touching the engine pretty soon. And so I dove into the, you know, just terrible firefighter, but like I dove into the cab of the truck and we were trying to back out and like, I'm sucking air out of the vent because it was just i was ready to puke and i did um as soon as we uh got out of there you know got to a got crawled out of the truck and just just puking everywhere and it was that was pretty brutal but fun times oh boy um we're gonna bounce all over here uh what's the best caliber and why the 6.5 creedmoor <laughs> justin osterban <laughs> Just kidding. Has podcasting opened up any doors or cool opportunities? Um, it's opened up like the coolest opportunities is just what I said earlier to begin with. Um, being able to say that I've talked to or have certain people in my phone now that I assume would, you know, pick up if I at least sent them a text message or give them a call or something. Um, you know, I can't say there's been like, Oh, Hey, you know, you were, I was a guest on your podcast and you know, anything like crazy, but, um, you know, I, I think it had a little bit to do with getting the job that I have now. I think that they probably knew about that and liked the, you know, that I was doing that or involved or knew how to do a podcast. I don't, I don't know. That's a good question. I don't know if it's stuff that'll something that'll manifest itself, you know, years later. I don't know. I, and, and the punchline is I don't really care um, if it doesn't do anything for me. It's already done everything for me because I just, I love having the conversations and stuff. So, oh boy. Uh, Epilgs, E-P-I-L-G-S. Uh, how, this is a good one. This is going to get good. <clears throat> how is using a trail cam to scout worse than technology helping people shoot a thousand yards? <laughs> Let me roll my sleeves up. All right. Um, I don't want this to turn into anything more than it is, but here's, here's my, let me establish this first. Um, this kind of stuff is extremely hard to regulate, right? Even the trail camera seasons or whatever, we've already like in states like Nevada, we've already heard of um, you know, guys leaving cameras out and, you know, people find them and rip them off trees cause it's after the date and blah, 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 blah. So first of all, in the hunting world, this kind of stuff is almost impossible to police cause they just don't have, there's just not enough boots on the ground. Right. And so that's the first thing, this stuff, regardless of what side you're on here, this stuff gets very hard to regulate one way or the other. Now he's probably referring to the fact that I'm openly in favor of at least these trail camera seasons. Um, and why, why am I, why am I openly, you know, for a, it's not a ban, right? It's just a season, right? It's, it's a regulation or a season. Um, I think that trail cameras specifically, 
it's not that trail cameras are any better at helping people chase down big bucks or kill big bucks or big bulls than long range rifles are or anything, right? Our smartphones and Onyx and, uh, you know, uh, technology from these scouting services and, uh, you know, the technical hunting clothing that we use and the e-scouting and the optics, right? We just talked about that, like the, the crazy change in optics. It's not that trail cameras are any better at that than any, any of the other things. And so why, right? Why, why would I draw my line in the sand with trail cameras? And here's why. It doesn't take a person physically there to benefit from. And it's the only place that I can come up with to draw the line of the sand because get real. Are we going to, are we going to regulate how far you can shoot a rifle at a deer? Nope. And even if we did again, how are you going to regulate it? Right. Uh, are we going to regulate the quality of backcountry clothing that a guy can wear? Cause it keeps him out there longer. So he has a way better chance of killing. No, we're not. We're going to regulate being able to use on X and Google maps. I really doubt it. Right. Not reasonable, but where can we draw the line? I think that it's, it's pretty reasonable to draw the line on is a human being physically there to execute on the technology or with the technology or is one not. And I know that you have to initially set a trail camera up, but that's not when you benefit from a trail camera. You specifically benefit from a trail camera when you're not there and when you leave and when you're just at home sitting on the couch eating Cheetos or whatever, right? And it doesn't matter what you're doing. Now, transmitting trail cameras is even more, you know, easier line in the sand to draw, but even just trail cameras in general. And do not get me wrong, I've lived in southern Utah or whatever, states where it was completely legal at the time, and I used the heck out of trail cameras. It was, it's a reason that we've killed multiple big bucks. And so part of it is I'm able to be honest with myself and realize like, man, you know, that really was why that deer died, or that's really why we found that buck, right? Um, not necessarily because we, you know, were there being a good hunter, but we just hung a trail camera in the right spot, right? And and that buck, you know, did something where he should have been able to get away and not, you know, uh, came in at night to water and that's all it took, right? Is we knew that he was there and then it was just a matter of time and we killed him or whatever, right? So I'm all for it when it's legal. And at the same time, if I was put down and, and on the committee to vote, I would vote to put a season in or ban it or whatever you want to call whatever, whatever was on the table, I would probably vote for the more strict version of it because I don't like the fact and I'm willing to sacrifice um, the fact that a human being is not there to execute and benefit from the technology when it's benefiting you. Um, now for the guys who are going to rebuttal and say, Oh, the, the regulation, you know, like, Oh, they're going to over, this is just a slippery slope. And as soon as they regulate this, they're, they're going to come after this, or they're going to come after that. And they'll even throw in long range hunting rifles at me, right? Like, Oh, how can you be for that? The next thing they're going to take is your long range hunting rifle. Well, first of all, take it. Whatever you're going to do to regulate it, take it. What is it? You're going to, you're going to not allow turreted scopes. Fine. 
we'll figure out a way to shoot a 600-yard shot, you know, or a 700-yard shot or a 400-yard shot, and it'll just be a little bit less ethical than it would have been if I had a turret to dial up. Like, that's just asinine, right? Um, if if you if you're gonna make the argument that you don't want the regulation, like on the flip side, you probably love when they regulate your favorite hunting area. Um, if you're a trophy hunter and they regulate the number of tags, or or you're probably the guy who complains when they overissue tags, right? And they don't regulate your hunting unit enough, and then the the quality goes to crap. So all of a sudden you love regulation, right? Or you wish they would regulate it more or regulate it differently. And so you can't pick and choose necessarily when you love uh, the fish and game or the commission or whatever uh, to do the regulating only when it it works in your favor, right? So, but it, it goes, for me, it goes back to where do you draw the line? Well, all those other pieces of technology, gear and vehicles and scouting and uh, you know, even on X, right? You're whatever Google earth, you're physically sitting there running the computer yourself. Right. And it, it even, even hiring a guide, you're not the one, but you're at least someone is going, you know, you're hiring someone, uh, to be there physically and take you out and, you know, hold your hand and show you, you know, where to hunt and what to do. And there's a physical person there. Right. So even hiring someone, um, someone was there to execute with that technology. And that's, hopefully that's as clear as I can make it. Um, so without getting too, uh, you know, much more in depth with that. So it's not that it's worse or better, um, or one's, you know, more effective or less effective. It's where can we logically draw the line? And for me, it's, is a person there to execute with it or not? uh hadley's touch on finding a big october buck two or three tips used well first of all i'm not sure that i've ever killed a big october buck um but i think in order to kill a big october buck you gotta think like a big october buck and what are big october bucks got on their mind getting away from other bucks right they're typically uh hold up by themselves maybe one other buddy right that that they're just kind of, uh, you know, them and their one favorite best bud or whatever. So very small numbers of deer and typically, you know, the big bucks seem to kind of separate themselves. Um, and then they are getting the heck away from all the traffic that's probably been chasing them since, you know, first of September and into muzzleloader season, depending on which state you're in. And so they are trying to get the heck away from pressure. Okay. So that's the second thing. And then third is they are trying to pack on the calories. They are trying, so food source, food source, food source is what I would target. What are they eating that time of year? Where's a secluded area that holds that type of food source, right? And, you know, not that this is a tactic, but um, just where are they, where are the other like general deer populations not? Because I think they have a tendency to kind of, separate themselves and just kind of be that grumpy old man for a while until the rut kicks in. Um, so again, I am not a October mule deer expert guys like Robbie Denning probably are uh, the guys to contact, but that's, um, that is my best advice. Um, and this kind of goes right in with that, right? My buddy, Steve Evans, would you rather archery hunt the first two weeks of September or rifle hunt the last two weeks of October? 
absolutely hands down no question i would rather archery hunt the first two weeks um i mean it is there's no question the first two weeks of september uh mule deer bucks are typically still doing everything that they were doing all summer in the general location that they were doing it you can scout them first two weeks of september they're still going to have their velvet uh generally and so they're a lot less likely to be buried off in some timber they're going to be a little bit more out in the open because they don't want to you know smash that those velvet antlers uh, again you can pattern them it's hotter so if you're in the desert country like where i grew up man water you can just and again if trail cameras you know ironically i'll say if trail cameras are legal gosh dang like you know august september type hunts and you can just pin them down on water like you know you got a lot better chance of finding them uh, but always, I mean, hands down, always, almost any time in September, I would say, with any weapon over October, right? Now, late October in, you know, certain units, you know, uh, later or further north or whatever, you might get into some rutting action. And that can get pretty good. But even then, I don't like relying on a lot of that's weather dependent. A lot of that's moon phase dependent. I'm learning from guys like Robbie Denning. I don't like the idea of relying on chance as much as just hey i can go scout a buck and try to find him or whatever um or or have a you know those those late october rut type deals they can sometimes work and they can sometimes not i mean you see it all the time and even it well into november on those uh like third and fourth season colorado tags depending on the calendar and the year that it falls on um guys can burn you know 10 15 20 crazy points or whatever and then they're in t-shirt weather in the middle of november and there's not a big buck roaming around to be found and they're you know they got a seven day hunt and they're screwed right so um much rather chase them in the first two weeks of september <clears throat> oh boy here comes the energy drinks once uh transient outdoorsman dan the cameraman have you done an entire episode on energy drinks yet? Also, other field-ready caffeine. <laughs> uh, no, I have not done an entire energy drink. Unless you mean, have I done an episode while drinking an entire energy drink? Absolutely. Almost every one. I didn't tonight, surprisingly, um, for how tuned up I'm getting. But uh, Other field-ready caffeine. Jeez, I don't know. Uh, I hate to say it. The only stuff I've used in recent years has been like mountain ops ignite and it's incredible. It's honestly, it's my favorite product that they make. They have some stuff that I'm not a big fan of and I think is crap. Uh, but that ignite is one of the ones, the BCAAs, the ignite. I, I love those two products specifically and I love packing ignite into the backcountry. Uh, Sam Johnson again, have you tried a hundred different energy drinks yet? I don't know, man, but I'm probably getting close. What I pride myself in is trying to bring you guys reviews of energy drinks that you've never heard of. <laughs> and the last one, R underscore block, furthest you've packed an energy drink in. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, we've packed them a heck of a long ways on the llamas, I can tell you that. But I don't know how far I've personally packed an energy drink. Um, okay, I'm going to switch accounts here because I posted this on two different accounts. And some of these I'm seeing for literally the first time. <clears throat> so let's just go down the list, baby. There's not too many more here that I'm going to get to, but uh, BP feel 08. How do you deal and overcome the mental struggle on a tough solo hunt? 
Uh, it's the it's the single. It is the X factor. It's like calling win for long range shooters. Like it is the X factor. It's what separates the men from the boys is being mentally tough on a backcountry hunt, especially when you're solo. Um, I've had a handful now by myself, uh, and you know, the probably the I'm trying to think. You know, just doing it right. Like how do you how do you deal with an overcome? I've done it enough times now that I know what to expect from myself. I know that when day three or four hits, I like, I start desperately just, you know, wanting to get back and see my family or my wife. Right. And I know that, you know, when day three or four hits, like, you know, you're going to start, that's when the food thing kicks in and you get real tired of, you know, going back and eating the same crap granola bar, you know, power bar food or whatever. I know that when day three or four hits or, um, you know, that's when like, uh, the loneliness, you know, starts kicking in and you're really wishing that someone else is, you know, so I've, I've been through this before enough that I know what to expect. Um, you know, and so how do you deal with it, you know, and overcome it? I mean, you just, you just do it, start small. Um, you know, when I first started backpack hunting by myself one night, that was it. I would just go backpack in like two miles and I would camp one night because that was all I could handle when I was 20 or whatever. And then you just slowly start building up, you know, and 15 years later, I go do these seven day backpack hunts sometimes. So <clears throat> what is the thickest What the, with two C's? Come on, Jaden, Jaden Bells. What is the thickest buck you've killed or been on a kill with? Thickest? Do you? You know, I'm not tuned up enough, and I don't know if he means thickest like like the kids say like, oh, man, she's thick with three C's. Like she's super like like thick like like the heaviest buck? Or do you mean thick like is that like slang for like the coolest buck or the biggest buck? I don't know what's going on here, Jaden, but I, I'll just tell you the, the thickest buck that I've ever killed was my Colorado buck two years ago. 190 something uh with a muzzle loader and the biggest assuming that that's like the biggest baddest like thickest buck uh that i've ever been on a kill with uh my brother's 220 something uh inch also a muzzle loader buck uh utah oh man it's been a long time six seven eight years ago maybe uh again 220 and, and change or whatever just the most like my absolute dream buck has literally everything just uh incredible deer if you haven't seen that maybe i'll post a picture sometime what's harder to kill 200 inch buck or 400 inch bull and the lifelong debate this is going to come across very uh people are not are going to be surprised by my answer but nowadays i think it's harder to kill a 400 inch bull um if you don't believe me uh go find one don't even kill it. Just go find one. You know, they're anyway, I, I really, I honestly believe in the country that I hunt, the States that I hunt and the places that I hunt elk and mule deer. Um, I really think it's harder now, 12, 15 years ago, like mid two thousands. Uh, that wasn't the case. There's a lot of 400 inch bulls were getting killed on every unit in Utah, for example. But nowadays, uh, not the case. I think a 400 inch bull nowadays is harder to kill than a 200 inch buck. 200 inch deer are extremely hard to kill. I've still never killed one. 
but I don't even think I've seen a 400-inch bull, and I've seen a handful of 200-inch bucks. Picks of Peters, Judas Priest, what is this? Uh, let's see, how should I be looking at the Utah General? What kind of name is that, by the way? Uh, how should I be looking? Maybe his name is, he's Peter, Picks of Peters? I don't know. How should I be looking at the Utah General deer hunt as a non-resident? I have a handful of points, but don't know when I should prioritize it over other Western low point Colorado options or Idaho. Uh, Utah has some of the best general deer hunting in the West, and it takes you two to four points, depending on maybe even less, maybe one to four points, depending on which uh, you know specific unit and weapon. So, you know, relative to like the Colorado thing, assuming that a guy has time to do uh, a couple hunts a year, I would just, you know, I would do it in junk in conjunction with those other hunts, right? I would uh, maybe go early hunt. You know, you can hunt the the bow hunt, for example, in Utah early uh, mid like mid August, and the bow hunt in Colorado doesn't start until September second. So you would easily have time to do both bow hunts. Uh, muzzle loaders don't overlap, I don't think, right? So you could you could also do if you're a muzzle loader guy, you could go do, uh, you know, one of these low point like he's saying like a low point Colorado, or you know he also mentions Idaho Montana General. I don't know much. I don't know anything about Montana General really. Um, Idaho just over the counter still if you can get on and get one fast enough. But um, my advice with Utah General deer is just burn them as as often as you can, and that's even for some of the prime general tags, two to four years, uh, you know, even the rifle hunts on those units that are a little more sought after. But um, I think that you could, if you got on the right schedule, a guy could just go back and forth, right? Like every two to three years you go hunt Utah and then you mix in, you know, a real good schedule there would just be kind of what I'm doing, right? Like, I go hunt Utah as often as I can, basically. As soon as I have the general points, because it takes about three or four years, boom, I'm going to go hunt Utah no matter what. But then in between, I've got two or three years, and I basically either am going to hunt Colorado or I'm going to hunt Idaho because I know I can secure one of those tags each year if I decide I want to go build points in Colorado as well for a year because maybe there's a hunt that takes a point then I would go over the counter in Idaho and just grab whatever tag you could get in December when those open up so a guy could really cycle like a three or four year cycle there and not not even miss a beat and just keep hitting those same hunts over and over and over you know for as long as you could stand it so that's what I would do Justin Stark, what's up, buddy? Fellow Wyomingite. Uh, what is hunting going to look like in 10 years? 100 years. Holy cow. I have no idea what it's going to look like in 100 years. I don't even know what it's going to look like in 10 years, man. Um, you know, I can tell you right now, hunting hunting's pretty fragile. Uh, that's all I can speak to is what I can see right now. But I think hunting's on a, in a pretty fragile state. Um, you know, for better or for worse... Um, right now the world has a lot to occupy their mind and so you know hopefully some of this stuff draws the attention away from you know hunting and people have realized they have more important things to worry about in life um, than trying to shut hunting down or whatever and and i hate to say that because it shouldn't take a freaking war in ukraine or um you know a terrible president or whatever to 
distract us, you know, so that people aren't worried about hunting. But, um, you know, when people, the stuff will pass, the stuff will blow over and then we'll, you know, people get back to regular life eventually. And, um, you know, COVID's starting to blow over a little bit and blah, blah, blah. Um, and hunting's just going to continue to get attacked over and over and over and over. Um, it's like being pecked to death, you know, by, by chickens and, um, they're just not going to let up. Right. So that's what hunting looks like right now. I think, you know, we all need to do a little better job of coming together no matter what, uh, aspect that looks like. And, you know, it kind of reminds me of Remy Warren had a little po a little article that at first I was really, you know, I was kind of annoyed with and then as i read it and kind of thought like you know he what he's he was referring to social media kind of ruin hunting and, and his point was if we're not careful about what we put out there and be a little bit more thoughtful then eventually it's going to bite us and i think he's right and it kind of goes hand in hand with that right if we're not cognizant of what other people um you know other hunters are thinking then eventually we're going to hurt we're going to shoot ourselves in the foot or what what other you know, non-hunters are thinking we're going to shoot ourselves in the foot. Trey Tay, what up, Taylor Call? Uh, bang or monster? Man, this is tough because what's the objective, right? If you're if you're just looking to, like, get just, like, like, just feel good about the day and just get going and get some energy at work or whatever, a white monster for sure, just a monster in general, but a white monster. If you If it's, like, you know... A, the longest road trip you've ever been on or like Friday night and you're in college and you got a hammer down and like you're going to some party late or something like dude a bang also if you've watched my stories um if it's like you know Saturday morning after you know a long night of hunting or something you get back and you gotta have a pick me up or it's trade show season then you mix a bang in the morning that pina colada bang with some oj and you hit up that mormosa like i was saying that church of jesus christ of latter-day saints mosa to be politically correct um that's it's pretty unstoppable so it just depends on the objective <clears throat> logan uh taos has got jokes here uh he says over under on how many years to episode 200 <laughs> he's setting the over under at eight Holy cow, man. Eight years to get to episode 200. Um, what kind of odds are you going to give me on that, Logan? Let's hit, hit me up. Put your uh, money where your mouth is, as they say. And we'll see how fast I get to 200 episodes, won't we? And let's do the last one here. I don't have time for any more. Uh, Zane Hermans. What's it like to be famous? I have no idea. I will let you know if that ever happens, Zane. Um, I'm just a wannabe guy that, uh, bought, you know, $800 worth of podcasting stuff and gets other famous people on my podcast. So next time when I'm talking with one of them, I will ask them to answer that. That's all I got time for folks. This has been the 100th episode of the finding Backcountry podcast. And I am happy to say that I've already got episode 101 recorded, uh, Logan. So you guys can suck it. I am going to roll this into episode 200 episodes, uh, much faster than I rolled it into a hundred. So thank you guys so much for listening. And, uh, you know, I don't ask for much on here, but man, like hundred episodes, like this is a real thing. Let's, let's share it up. You know what I'm saying? Like, let's, tell our friends about it and 
um, pass it on. And if you like it, if you don't, then what are you doing here at this point? You know, so, but love you guys. Uh, glad that we have the same interest. Cause if not, no one would listen to this. So, um, you know, what you guys like is usually what I like and vice versa. So please hit me up, tell me who I should get on the podcast. I will seriously hunt them down. I've, I've done pretty good with a lot of them so far. So, um, but here's to, uh, here's 200 more. See you guys. Hey everybody. Thank you for listening to the finding Backcountry podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you subscribe and mention it to your friends. But the best thing you can do, leave a rating on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. For notes and links to this and other episodes, please visit findingbackcountry.com.